It's good to see you again. Let's pray together and ask God to strengthen us as we continue to learn from his word. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant to us the power of your Holy Spirit, that we can read your word truly and receive it into our hearts thoroughly, and that we'd be changed more like Jesus. And we ask for his name. Amen. You'll see uh, the outline uh, is there on the sheet that you received as you came in. It'd be useful if you have that before you. Uh, you may have heard of the Winchester House. It's one of the strangest houses the world has ever known. Uh, built by Mrs Winchester, whose husband's wealth came from the rifle that's associated uh, with that name, the Winchester Rifle. Uh, She lost her husband and her only child in 1918 and out of grief or perhaps guilt she became obsessed with the occult. She consulted a medium uh, to contact her dead husband and find out what she should do and the medium told her, as long as you keep building your home, you will never face death. As long as you keep building your home, you will never face death. And so she embarked on a massive building project, apparently based on this belief that as long as she continued to build her house, she wouldn't die. And so it is an extraordinary structure. Its construction occupied 16 carpenters employed full-time for 38 years. At its largest, before being partly destroyed by fire, it contained 200 doors and 160,000 windows, more than the entire Empire State Building. The front doors were installed at the then staggering sum of $3,000 and were used only once by the people who installed them. There were twists and turns throughout the house, secret passageways and hidden corridors, stairs that ran to the ceiling and then no further, doors that opened only onto brick walls. It was a remarkable house. Apparently, all this was done, in her own words, to confuse death. Death would come visiting, see, and open the door, oh, brick wall, bother. She was still building the house when death came to her and death was not the slightest bit confused. Death has a wonderful sense of direction. After Mrs Winchester died, it took eight trucks working full time for seven weeks to cart away all the building materials and excess junk out of that house. For 38 years they'd been coming and then they came once more, they came for her. The house was an amazing house, a metaphor of the life of a woman who knew deep in her bones the inevitability of death and did everything she possibly could to evade it. But death has a magnificent sense of direction. It gets all of us. It has the highest success rate of any phenomenon in the world. 100% absolute money back guarantee. And what it gets, it keeps. I've only seen one recognisable dead body uh, in my life close up. I went, I actually illegally snuck into the uh, anatomy lab here at Sydney Uni when I was in first year. Not that you heard it from me. It's a great visit though, a lot of fun. uh, uh, But I've only seen one recognisable 
uh, dead body uh, in my life. My father died last year due to complications after surgery. Prior to seeing the body, I was anxious, scared even, wondering what it would be like to see you know, the actual body of someone who I knew and, and who I recognised. When I entered the little room, though, it was clear that there was nothing to be afraid of at all. In fact, that was the problem. Death is such an overwhelming nothingness. The body lies there, entirely inert, incapable, lifeless, useless. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that. It's not a modern discovery that death is final. Even people in the first century knew that death was final. And so it was nothing other than, with a heavy heart I suppose, that Mary Magdalene approached the tomb where her hero, her mentor, had been laid, dead, cold, inert, useless. All that he had claimed to be, the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life, the one whom God would glorify, all of that now lay utterly in tatters. He was dead and buried and his enemies were rubbing their hands. And if the gospel ended there, we wouldn't be here. The EU wouldn't exist, the church wouldn't exist, I wouldn't have a job. The Bible's in your hands, I hope you have a Bible in your hands after my exhortation last week. The Bible's in your hands wouldn't be there, at least not the last 250 pages of it. You wouldn't have just had a long Christmas holiday and Jesus' life would have proved to have been a sham, a fake, a fraud that you would have heard nothing of. And to top it off for Mary, some creep has interfered with the dead body of Jesus. John chapter 20 verse 1, early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. It's obvious what's happened. Someone has mucked it up. John, however, has something profoundly important to tell us in this account. The fact is, no one has interfered with the body of Jesus. Rather, he is risen risen from the dead. And so over the course of this chapter, John puts before us with great power and clarity the claim of the resurrection that Jesus has been raised in a transformed bodily manner, the meaning of the resurrection, which takes place, he says, twice on the first day of the week. We'll see the significance of that. And then thirdly, the mission of the resurrection, that Jesus sends his disciples as the Father has sent him. The claim of the resurrection the meaning of the resurrection and the necessary mission of the resurrection. And we'll look at each of those in turn, as you see there on your outline. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter's threefold denial of Jesus has not led to his exclusion from the group of the disciples. I think if I'd been one of those original disciples and Peter had come back and said, Hi guys, you might have laid into him. I mean, look what he'd done. Perhaps though you weren't much better. Anyway, it's to Peter that Mary goes. Uh, he's in something of a panic and so he starts sprinting. Sprinting is a shuffle way of uh, moving for Jewish adult men. Uh, but it's okay because he's sprinting with someone else. He's having a bit of a race actually. It all gets a bit comic. The, uh, the other disciple. We get the Bruce McAvaney uh, commentary on the race. Uh, the hesitation, the pause before the tomb, the plunging in of Peter but especially we get the status of the burial wrappings used on Jesus, obviously. 
Verse 3. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, just in case you didn't get the first time that John said he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings that were lying there, which we've been mentioned twice already, but rolled up in a place by itself. It's interesting to contrast the account of Lazarus with that of Jesus. There are lots of parallels. In fact, precisely the same unusual word is used for head cloth in both this narrative and in the narrative with Lazarus. Of course, it's the difference that's all important. Lazarus Lazarus comes out clothed still in his burial cloth, still wrapped around him, sort of. His was a return from the dead. The burial cloth used to wrap the body of Jesus, in stark contrast, has been left behind precisely because Jesus has left death behind. The same point is made as Mary meets the Lord, uh, who she thinks is the one, perhaps, who has stolen the body. Verse 14. Um, When she had said this, She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She's been speaking with some angels. Uh, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Precisely the same question that Jesus asked to the soldiers when they came to arrest him. Interestingly, whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is the same Jesus, someone who can be touched and held, known and spoken to, and yet it is Jesus with a difference. One who is not initially recognisable. Again, the same point is made when Jesus encounters Thomas. Thomas is uncertain as to who Jesus is, But it's clearly the same person that he's been following for three years and who was crucified, died and was buried just a few days earlier. The holes in his hand and side are still there. They prove it. The same and yet different. It's very important to understand the claim of the resurrection that's being presented to us here by John to make sure that we don't go for the wrong option. You see it on your sheets there. What has happened to Jesus is no ordinary resurrection if that's not too much of an oxymoron your average garden variety everyday sort of resurrection not simply a return to life as it was like for example Lazarus or the son of the widow of Nain uh, recorded for us in Luke chapter 7 uh, they come back on point um, the, the uh, A on the diagram there they come back but of course they will go yet again into death death being between the parallel lines Now, that's not the claim that's being made here. It's very different. Nor was it a resurrection, as some disturbers of the faith have put it, a kind of ghost or or spiritual apparition, as though Jesus, the human being, had stayed dead, you see, stayed in death, but but his memory or, or his power had risen in the disciples' hearts. The early believers knew about that kind of visitation from the dead of a ghost or a vision. 
in Acts chapter 12. Uh, we get a very comic scene where Peter is delivered from prison and goes to the house where his friends are praying for him to be delivered from prison. They're praying, it's happened. Uh, he knocks at the door, a servant girl answers and, and, and she's just too stunned. Uh, she leaves him there because she's so upset and freaked out by what she's seeing. Not a very useful way to treat guests, especially the person you're just praying for. We're praying in here but he's standing at the door. You stay there, I'm going inside. She goes in and says, it's Peter at the door. The disciples say, stop being stupid. And uh, they say to her, you're out of your mind. She insisted that it was so. And chapter, Acts chapter 12, verse 15, they say, well, perhaps it's his angel. They know what it is to be visited by someone from the dead. Uh, John Spong, who's an Episcopalian bishop in the United States, uh, a deeply arrogant man, uh, who wants to uh, change the Christian faith and be better than what it is in the Bible, uh, understands the resurrection in this kind of way as something that's happening primarily to the disciples. I quote, Simon saw the meaning of the crucifixion that morning as he had never seen it before. And Simon felt himself to be embraced even with his doubts, his fears, his denials in a way that he had never before been embraced. That was the dawn of Easter in human history. It would be fair to say that at that moment Simon felt resurrected. The clouds of his grief, confusion and depression vanished from his mind and at that moment he knew Jesus was a part of the very essence of God. At that moment Simon saw Jesus alive. It's quite poetic, isn't it? Absolute nonsense. It's to completely fudge the issue. You see that, don't you? The scripture doesn't say that Peter was resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. And resurrected means only one thing. Uh, The scholar N.T. Wright, uh, foremost defender of the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, shows why this is just not a tenable view. I quote, he says, Resurrection meant embodiment. Resurrection was not a term for life after death in general. It always meant re-embodiment. However strong the disciples' sense may have been that Jesus had been vindicated, that they had been forgiven or whatever, they still would not have said that he was raised from the dead. Something remarkable happened to the body of Jesus. We see that reflected here, don't we? That Jesus speaks, Jesus can be touched, his wounds are still apparent. This is no ghost or spirit. This is not a visit from the world of the dead of someone safe in the hands of God. It just doesn't stack up to the evidence. Well, some say that Jesus, according to diagram there C, was raised but with an entirely discontinuous body that has no relation to his earthly body so that the tomb is still full of the bones of Jesus. You see, the the body that Jesus died in goes into death and then a wholly new body comes out, discontinuous entirely. This is the position of the former primate of Australia, why the Anglican Church in Australia calls its uh, nominal head the primate, I'm not entirely sure. But that's what he is. Uh, Peter Carnley, despite uh, the fact that people say he doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus at all, that's not true. He does, but it's one that's entirely different from his former body. So that the tomb was not empty but it's full. You can go and find and presumably there will be the bones of Jesus somewhere. This is better than the first two but it's still seriously wrong. 
The reason it's seriously wrong is that it has a very significant theological implication that God ditches his creation. That God ditches his creation. That bit of his creation which Jesus took to himself, his flesh, his body, and therefore all of creation. That Satan has really won. That the evil one has driven an immovable wedge between God and his creation. And therefore that God has started all over again. Now there's something right about C. There is a discontinuity. But the truth rather is D. There is discontinuity and there is also continuity. That is what the claim here is. Is that Jesus, the same person, the same individual, in the same body, was resurrected such that the tomb really was empty. His body was not discarded, but rather that same body was raised, transformed. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, glorified. Glorified. His body was redeemed, just like the world will be redeemed also. You could put it like this, Jesus' resurrection is transphysical transphysical, a transformed physical or bodily raising from the dead. That is the claim of the resurrection. Nothing less will do. The point is that this resurrection provides the catalyst, the starting point for a never-ending story. You see, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we have nothing to say. We have nothing to offer. He was just another failed Messiah. There are plenty of them. He was just another talking head. There are plenty of them. Who in the end simply came to an end. But if he was raised from the dead, or rather because he was raised from the dead, we have to say, we have to speak. You see, it's an all or nothing kind of thing, this resurrection thing of Jesus. If he's still in the grave, then the whole thing is a complete joke. I remember saying to friends, if Jesus was, uh, was not raised from the dead, I'd stop being a Christian today. It's a complete waste of time being a Christian if Jesus is, uh, is not raised from the dead. You're just on a, on a hallucination. It's a joke. You might as well go eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and just like Jesus. I was shocked, but what about being a nice person, all that kind of stuff? Well, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, what's the point? What's the point? But because he is raised from the dead, then nothing less than the most important thing in all of human history and experience has happened. This is nothing less than the first day of the rest of eternity for the universe. I find it incredible, but it is true that it's quite possible to be fully aware of the resurrection and completely miss its meaning. A little while ago, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote that 43% of people in it believe the resurrection occurred as a historical fact. 43% of Sydney siders believe that the resurrection occurred as an historical fact. Well, frankly, so what? They believed that it occurred as an historical fact. So did plenty of people at the time. The soldiers around at the time did. The Jews around at the time did. For obvious reason. In fact, it was never really an issue for those who were there. It was all too obvious that that's what had happened. 
I remember one night uh, arguing with a friend in a pub for hours about the resurrection. I was down here at the stand at uh, Sydney University as the night wore on and I kept plying him with alcohol and his brain got fuzzier. Uh, strangely, he got increasingly convinced of my point of view. Finally, he said, after presentation of all the evidence I could master, OK, 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 Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's it. Okay, time to become a Christian. Down on your knees. Let's do it. He just said, so what? So what? I was, I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. He had a bare belief in an event 2,000 years ago. He had no comprehension of its meaning. So I want to take us the next step and say, the issue is not so much whether you believe in the resurrection. Uh, there are plenty of people, uh, there's a Jewish scholar who's written a book of affirming the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. doesn't stop him from being a Jewish scholar. Yes, an interesting historical fact. It's fairly straightforward, to be honest. It's fairly straightforward, the historical evidence for the resurrection. Now, the significance of it is what you do with it, what it means. Make sure you hear this. John is entirely grandiose in his understanding of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. John is massive in his understanding of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you know how John's Gospel begins, you'll remember that he starts the prologue with an obvious allusion to creation. Remember the first three words of John's Gospel? In the beginning. And if you've read the Bible at all, you know that this is a deliberate echo of the first three words of Genesis. In the beginning. In other words, John is telling us a new version of an old story. It's a new version because immediately what he has to say about the beginning is not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. No, in the beginning, even prior to that, if you can put it that way, in the beginning was the Word. The Word who became flesh. In the beginning was Jesus, actually, who was with God and was God and through whom all things were made. And nothing that has been made was made apart from him. What we're dealing with in John's Gospel introduced to us in the prologue is a new creation narrative, a new version of In the Beginning, achieved precisely through this one who was with God and was God, this one who has come to be with us. And you see, what is announced in the prologue is completed by chapter 20. Chapter 20 in the prologue have enormous number of parallels what is announced in the prologue is achieved in the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, during the trial of Jesus, on the sixth day of Jesus' last week, John records Pilate saying, Behold the man. Just as on the sixth day of creation, humankind was created in God's image. Behold the man. John is careful to note that Mary goes to the tomb while it's still dark. But the true light, which is the light of all people, has not been overcome by the darkness of death. He has risen, there is light. At the prologue speaks of all who believe in Jesus' name receiving power to become children of God. And now Jesus speaks wonderful words of grace to Mary. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Until now Jesus had spoken of God only as his Father. But now that which was promised in the prologue 
has been achieved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. My father and your father, children of God. It's not surprised then that in verse 22 Jesus breathes his own spirit into his disciples. Just as God breathed the breath of life, the spirit of life into human nostrils in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. And the high point of this whole sequence of thought is the exclamation of Thomas. Uh, having not been with the disciples when Jesus came to them on the first day of the week, uh, he refuses unless he sees and feels the risen Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and makes the offer that that could be the case, but apparently Thomas doesn't need to go through with it. The offer is enough. Verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Since the beginning of the Gospel, where we're introduced to the Word who'd become flesh, who was with God in the beginning and who was God, no one has recognised really who Jesus is. No one. God the only Son was close to the Father's heart and who has made the Father known. Now, now by resurrection it's clear. John is saying in chapter 20 that what the resurrection means is that that which was promised and outlined in the prologue of the Gospel has been achieved. Twice he says that these events take place on the first day of the week, you see. The first day of the week. The eighth day. After the seventh day of rest for the Creator in the tomb, now is the eighth day. The first day of the rest of eternity has begun by the resurrection of Jesus. Notice what this is not. What we're not told here is Jesus is raised so you don't need to be afraid of death. Jesus is raised so we know that there's life after death. That's true, but it's secondary. It's secondary. The main point is rather this. Jesus is raised and that means a new day has begun. A new week has begun. A new creation, a redeemed creation has begun where blessing and fruitfulness reign, where life and peace are normal, where death is defeated. Which leads then necessarily to our third point. You see, if that is what has happened, then it needs to be implemented. If that's what's happened, then it needs to be implemented. The Gospel is not so much that there's a new possibility, the possibility of the forgiveness of sins. That was always available under the Old Covenant, the first creation. No, the Gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the announcement of an achievement, not a possibility. The most significant achievement since the creation of the universe, namely the recreation of the universe in Christ, the start of the future. And so the disciples, as disciples, as ordinary followers of Jesus, are to be not just disciples, but sent ones, missionaries. Chapter 20, verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We know how the Father sent the Son. He sent the Son in love, didn't he? He sent the Son to the cross. He sent the Son to give himself up for the sake of others. There are dozens upon dozens of references throughout John's Gospel to the Father sending the Son. It's one of the great categories that Jesus uses to describe his relation to the Father. He has been sent by him. We know why the Father has sent the Son. The Father sent the Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Father sent the Son so that he should lose none that have been given to him, but raise them up on the last day. We know how and we know why the Father sent the Son. And so we know how, we know why the Son sends his disciples. Us disciples. Also to love and to give themselves up for the sake of others. For their salvation, not for their judgement. To be those who bear the triumph of Jesus for others. Now you can get this wrong in a couple of ways. You can say, well, it's, it's all up to me. Jesus is gone. I'm here. Lucky God. You can get so focused on what you do that you forget there are any other players, either God or other people, and become a one woman or a one man mission team. My thing, my project, my involvement, my conversations are the only thing that count and you just kind of go solo and do it yourself and burn out very quickly. Or you can flip to the other side and say, well, actually, it's not up to me at all. It's other people's jobs. I don't have the ability. I don't have the opportunity. This doesn't really apply to me. I don't have the courage. I don't have the answers. I don't know the Bible well enough. All excuses, all poor. The fact is that we all have the ability, we all have the same opportunity or you can make opportunity, we all have a Bible and Christian books and a brain to find out answers and we are all disciples of Jesus if we put our trust in him who he sends as the Father has sent him. Now it's not all up to you nor is it all up to other people. You have your part to play as one who is sent by Jesus. Let's just take a moment to spell this out a little bit. It doesn't really matter how you do it. What matters is that you do it. That you see yourself and act as though you have been sent by Jesus. There's the bread and butter business of sharing your life with others, sharing Christ with people around you, your friends and your family and your colleagues. Simply opening up and speaking about what you like, what you do on the weekend. Well, I did this on Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening. I did this on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and then I came to uni on Monday. And just forget to tell people that you went to church. That's not the way to do it, is it? I don't know what time you go to church. What did you do on the weekend? I went to church and had a great time. Were you at church? Why not? 
Where else would you be except with Jesus and his people? And off you go. See, that's a one-stop evangelistic conversation right there. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Share your life. Uh, My kids have started going to school. Going to school, it's great to have kids, if for no other reason than that you get to send them to school and meet lots of other parents. Perhaps not the best reason to have kids, but, 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 you know, it's up there. It's up there. Uh, my wife and I have made friends with people. We get a chance to talk with them. Uh, they know that I'm a minister. That means Katrina gets easy conversations. I get easy conversations. Uh, guy's father died. He wanted to talk with me about death. Why? Just because his kid's a friend of my kid. And so we can talk about stuff. When I mentioned, I, I, I told him about the resurrection of Jesus, that he has power over death for those who put their trust in him. Not being on a crusade, it's just being a Christian with a big open heart. As the Father has sent me, says Jesus, so he sends you. The keys here are readiness and prayerfulness and naturalness. Be ready for opportunities that come. There are endless numbers of them. Be prayerful that God would give them to you. If you pray for a week that God would give you opportunities to speak to people about Christ, you will not fail to get it. I, 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 the EU, Ryan Smart, will give you $5 <laughs> if that happens. You pray for a week and that God doesn't answer that prayer. Prayerfulness and naturalness. Just speak about being Christian as though it were a normal and natural part of your life. Because it is, isn't it? It is. There are many other things that you can do. You're not just reactive or responsive to what happens around you. You can take deliberate steps to spend your holidays on a short-term mission uh, over the summer break or supporting financially someone else. I know uh, a lecturer here at the university who has at his own expense expense has brought out a young Christian from Mongolia and uh, supported her through extra study. She's now back in Mongolia, you'll hear about this, and uh, engaged in a remarkable ministry. He's had a direct gospel impact in Mongolia because he took some initiative. Another friend of mine has become involved with the Kairos ministry, an unbelievable outreach to prison inmates, people of of all people who need to know the love of God. Uh, You may not know it, but there's a virtual revival taking place in a number of the prisons through this state. Dozens upon dozens of people are being saved and entrusting themselves to the risen Lord Jesus. But it's more than just as individuals, of course. We as the EU have this task. This year particularly is the 75th anniversary of EU and we're going to have a party, a whole year party. Extravagant. Extravagant outreach. What else would you do for your anniversary? We're going to proclaim the achievement of the resurrected Christ to this campus. Uh, You'll hear more about it, but the heart of it is our Seek 5 challenge. That each of us would be involved in joining Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. To ourselves, seek five people. To pray that God would lay five people on our hearts that we can share Christ with. That as the Father has sent Jesus, so he would send us to those five that we could speak to them of Jesus and that in his grace and power he would give us one that we could lead to Christ this year. There are all sorts of different events and activities and opportunities which will go with that. You'll hear more about it. But can I urge you to take up that challenge by a little key ring. Key ring, why? Because it's something you'll look at every day. And you'll look at it and you'll go, yes, I'm going to pray for those five. 
I know who my five are. I pray for them regularly. Seek five this year. Notice two other things about this sending. It entails genuine spiritual power and authority. He breathes on his disciples the breath of life. Life in the recreated world, the life of the Spirit, precisely to empower them for this mission. This is the same Spirit who is in all Christians. And at the same time, notice that it's the spiritual reality of the forgiveness of sins that we're dealing with here. And the community of God's people are given the authority of heaven. This is a terrifying verse, isn't it? That God somehow backs his church. That what the church does here on earth, God does in heaven. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. There's a lot to say here. We'll say a lot of it at annual conference, our main conference for the year, which is on the church and I think promises to be a fantastic time. But for now, notice that Jesus does not send us to build hospitals and schools. Good though those things are, they're not an end in themselves. That's not the mission, the sending which we are sent to. He doesn't send us to heal people and fix economic systems. Good though those things are. He sends us in the power of the Holy Spirit to be in the sin forgiveness business. Sin forgiveness through him. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Well, it's a good thing that Jesus sent his disciples who sent other disciples and Jesus sent those disciples and others and even crazy people who came out on the first fleet to this bottom end of the world and others who were sent by Jesus, who kept being sent by Jesus, who were good enough to speak the Gospel to you and to me. For without them we would not know of this resurrected Jesus, would we? I thank God for the people who invited me to the camp uh, during that December break where I heard of Christ, really, and who brought to me the word of the resurrected Jesus. And as God sent those people to me, as God sent whoever it was that spoke to you, so he sends you. Notice the blessing of Jesus. Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Jesus is full of expectation that there will be tens, hundreds, thousands, millions, just like us, who have not seen him and yet believe. Uh, It's important to read Christian biography from time to time and uh, there you can read about mighty missionaries. Uh, I was reading recently about some monks in the Middle Ages, incredible heroes, uh, who went among the barbarian tribes, these big, long-haired, hairy Germans, and saw the conversion of thousands upon thousands of them from, from a horrific violence to peaceable life in Christ. You read about them and you think, well, Jesus sent them, didn't he? But he wouldn't send me. He wouldn't send me. I want to say, you have the same power. You have the same resources at work in you as any of the greatest missionaries. 
any of the great heroes who have travelled the world, any of the great legends of the Christian church are empowered by the same Holy Spirit that's at work in you. The question is not whether you have the power. The question is not really whether you have the resources. They all knew themselves to be decidedly ordinary people. The question is, will you hear the word of Jesus? Will you accept the word of Jesus? That as the Father has sent him, so he sends you. Today, not not next year, not not when you finish your degree, not when you've got your house organised and your mortgage settled and your life in order and your marriage going well and your kids raised and not on drugs and you know I mean not 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 that day before you die. This day, this afternoon, you have a mission in life. As the Father has sent Jesus, as you're a disciple of Jesus, as he has granted to you the gift of his Holy Spirit, so he sends you and I into the relationships and context in which he's placed us. He brought you here to be his own presence and power in this place. Let's pray that God would work in us and through us for his glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the resurrected glorious one who has brought to fulfilment the purpose of God for new creation, for light to conquer the darkness, for life to triumph over death. And we pray that you would so fill us with faith and your Holy Spirit, that we would hear your word to us, that you send us as the Father sent you and in trust and confidence in your great grace work for your praise and glory.